What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DeCebedo and this week we have two stories for you. First we're going to discuss the operational guidance recently put out by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency for the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And then we discuss the ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court that truncated the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. The Uyghur Labor Prevention Act was signed into law by U.S. President Biden on December 23, 2021. The law attempts to strengthen the prohibition against the importation of goods made with forced labor. In this instance, by blocking entry to the U.S. any goods, wares, articles, and merchandise mined, produced, or manufactured wholly or in part in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region of the People's Republic of China. If you're unaware, Xinjiang has been at the attention of U.S. policymakers since around 2018 following reports of the mass internment of Uyghurs in quote-unquote re-education centers in China. The politics of this law is not what we're going to get into today. What we are interested in is how this law is going to be enforced. And this week, the commissioner of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, the entity that will be enforcing this law, released the CBP's guidance on how they're going to be doing that. And it's all about supply chain transparency, which is under the S pillar of ESG. So first, today we're going to look into what industries are going to be impacted by this law. And then we're going to dive into one of those industries in detail, the textile industry to be specific. Remember though, this is part of a string of import-export controls that the U.S. has enacted against China over a number of years. So I asked Miranda if she could first give us a quick note of context before getting into the new. The main point about this act and its implementation is that this is increases significantly the risks in quite a number of different sectors. Originally, a lot of the targeting of the products from Xinjiang and any companies that were operating in Xinjiang mainly concentrated on certain sectors. So cotton, um, Xinjiang produces about 22% of the world's cotton supply, Um, agricultural products, um, as well as things like solar technologies and technology and hardware. And this was companies that either were directly sourcing from the region or had operations and factories in in the province itself. These were easy connections that could be made to a small number of companies that immediately came under fire by their shareholders. Volkswagen still has a manufacturing facility in the province that produces a small number of cars sold in China. It has been under scrutiny for some time by both its investors and the German government for it. The Washington Post reported that Apple was actually lobbying against the passage of this Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act back in 2020 after it was alleged that the company was heavily dependent on Chinese manufacturing and human rights reports identified it as having used alleged forced Uyghur labor in its supply chain. Apple has denied these, but has tried to fix its supply chain nonetheless. This new law would make it necessary for Apple to prove that none of its products were manufactured using forced labor if they were going to come into the U.S. And now more companies are going to have to do what Apple and Volkswagen has to do if they want to import those products made in Xinjiang into the U.S. 
because the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act broadens the scope of companies that can be seen as having a possible tie to the region. And this means that any company which has any product which could be sourced from Xinjiang is then presumed to be using forced labor. Um, so this means that whether you have direct manufacturing in the province, whether you have um, whether you have suppliers in the province, but even a, over and above that is whether you're potentially sourcing goods which may have been produced in the province but are sold elsewhere means that you could be targeted or could have goods detained under this act. So if you've had something which was transported, manufactured in Xinjiang, but then maybe transported to, to the rest of China for then final export, then you can still have, you still need to be able to trace that back to the source and prove that that was um, either not made in Xinjiang or it was definitively not using forced labour um, because the assumption is that anything which is produced in the province will now be. And that's where, that's why it becomes a much, much broader, much wider, much, much more problematic um, for companies who are, who are potentially going to be facing these risks. So as a company, you need to prove to the Customs Border Patrol, the CBP, that your supply chain is clear of forced labor. And the US CBP has told companies how they can do that when they've issued their guidance this week. They say importers just need to demonstrate due diligence, effective supply chain tracing, supply chain management measures that ensure they do not import any goods made in whole or in part by forced labor, especially from the Xinjiang region. Which at first blush doesn't seem that bad, right? How hard is it for a company to know where it's buying its products from? Well, we will get into the difficulty companies have with supply chain transparency in our modern economy in a moment when Liz comes on to talk about the textile industry. But before that, I just want to reinforce how broad this is going to be because a lot of companies are indirectly intertwined with China and especially with the Xinjiang region, which I know Miranda agrees with because I'm just mimicking what she told me. Well, yes, because Xinjiang is a huge province um, and it's a very sort of agricultural and mineral rich province as well. Um, so the, as well as the, the, the cotton and the agricultural products, you, you also have um, a, quite a high degree of mining. And also the interesting thing is in sort of auto parts and the technology hardware, the government has, the Chinese government for quite a long time has done a go west policy where it tried to encourage companies to set up, you know, instead of in the eastern provinces of China, they would get you know, encouragement and subsidies in order to set up in the, in the much poorer western regions. And so you did actually have quite a lot of western companies either looking, going to places like Xinjiang or going to places like Chengdu and Chongqing in the, in the western provinces to, to set up. Um, and, and benefit from the cheaper manufacturing there. And that's why you have quite a lot of the suppliers in the region in, in places like sort of the auto parts and the technology hardware, which you wouldn't normally associate potentially with, with the region. Um, but because it's been part of the sort of the government's process of you know, encouraging um, development in the region and, and economic development overall, then you've got um, you've actually got quite a lot of pockets of specialist manufacturing there, which then will affect quite a number of the you know it's the high tech sectors 
as well as things like the textiles and the agricultural sectors, um, which are going to see an impact as well. Okay, so that is the overview. UFPA has broadened the possible companies that could have their goods turned back at U.S. ports. The burden of proof is now more on companies to show that they have supply chain transparency. And it's likely that a lot more companies than currently disclosed have some sort of indirect tie to manufacturing in the Xinjiang region. Due to both China being basically the world's factory and policies in China that encourage more manufacturing in its western regions such as Xinjiang. Let's now dive into the details here. What would it look like for a textile company, for example, to meet the requirements set by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection? For this, we're going to assume that the CBP is going to ask in practice what they said they would ask for in their guidance document, evidence of supply chain transparency and management through due diligence practices and things like that. And remember, the reason I say we're going to assume because the guidance for this law just came out earlier this month, June 13th to be precise. So there isn't much empirical evidence yet as to how this is going to play out. So what I did is I called up my colleague Liz Houston, who covers the textile industry for us, and I asked her simply how many companies that are clothing manufacturers actually know where their raw materials come from. Very few. So, I mean, if you think about the journey that uh, a piece of clothing goes on uh, to make it all the way to your back. So let's imagine you have a lovely shirt uh, that starts off uh, at a farm level. That's cotton that's that's farmed. It's then turned into bales of cotton, which is uh, spun into thread, which is woven into fabric, which is dyed. It's treated. It's maybe coated. Uh, you've got polyester thread that will turn it into a garment because thread isn't made of cotton. So that comes from somewhere else. You've got maybe embellishments, you've got buttons, you've got zips. And then finally, you've got a factory somewhere that cuts up all those pieces, sews them together and makes you a garment. And then maybe they send that directly to the US or maybe there's a third party that does a form of um, kind of middleman work that, that sources goods locally and then uh, sends them to the US. So... There are huge numbers of touch points within that supply chain and good apparel companies know all of their tier one suppliers, so the cut, make and sew, and a good portion of their material suppliers, like all the stages of material production. I would say very few know the details of every single touch point in that supply chain, particularly post-pandemic, because given the supply chain disruption that we've seen, a lot of companies are saying that uh, their supply chains don't look the same as they did two years ago. Uh, everyone was desperate for goods. People had to make changes. And now a lot of them are playing catch up to figure out who actually is producing the particular blue shiny button that's now on the shirt that's maybe different to the blue shiny button that was on your shirt two years ago. So kind of the opposite of transparency, more so ambiguity. Which actually, I'll say for our research, is, is really annoying. For example, I wanted to research what farms in the U.S. might not be able to grow their crops in the next decade due to the change in climate. And so the companies that rely on those crops would have to switch up their suppliers or be at risk. But when I looked around, no one has data on which farms are used by which companies in the U.S. You'd basically have to do something like get to the bank loans that these farms get in order to see who is backing the loan via produce purchase plans. So it's really tough, and companies don't yet really have the resources to make it happen. So does this mean for this 
law that no company can really adhere to the best laid plans by the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. So if you are really big, uh, it becomes easier to have direct relationships with all of the companies in the supply chain. So um, once you're big enough, you can source your own fabric directly. Some companies work directly with cotton farms. Uh, there are industry bodies that help um, the industry work directly with farms. So even if you're smaller, maybe that industry body will do it for you. Um, a lot of this so far is based on kind of voluntary movements um, towards tackling the opacity of the supply chain. It, it's not clear from the outside that anybody has the level of detail that's uh, potentially being asked for in this legislation. Um, but it's, uh, it's something that more and more companies are going to have to work on getting because this is just one piece of legislation in a broader move towards mandatory supply chain due diligence. That could be especially true for textiles in the U.S., which has to contend with both the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, but also there is the New York Fashion Sustainability and Social Accountability Act that, if passed in the New York legislature, will be the first U.S. law to explicitly place sustainability requirements at the feet of large fashion companies. Companies subject to this act in New York would have to not only map at least 50% of their supply chains, but they would have to report on the social and environmental risks that their supply chains face. How regulations will play out, though, are tough to predict overall, and they can sometimes hurt those they are trying to help. But with the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act and the New York Fashion Sustainability and Social Accountability Act point toward is the need for greater supply chain transparency. And with that need, hopefully, solutions will follow. For example, if there are already murmurs of blockchain being used to assess the volume of, say, organic cotton grown in an area. Regulators can then check that area's report volume with how many organic cotton shirts are made using that region's supply or claiming to use that region's supply. Volume assessments are actually one of the things that the CBP says it might use to check if a company is using raw materials or products from Xinjiang. Their guidance document says that they will look at evidence that the volume of inputs of component materials matches the volume of output for the merchandise produced. There are also more advanced systems being developed where companies could use the molecular structure of a commodity to see where it was actually grown by cross-checking their product with the molecular structure of a native plant. This will all require a lot of capital to complete, but there does seem to be a new willingness in our world to make supply chain transparency more of a reality. As we record this on June 30th, the U.S. Supreme Court has ruled to limit the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to restrict carbon emissions from power plants. It's another disruptive ruling this week by the U.S. Supreme Court. The first was the overturning of Roe v. Wade, effectively ending the federal right to abortion that was upheld in the U.S. for decades. We don't talk about Roe v. Wade this week, but we did do an episode on May 6 on abort-efficient manufacturers after a memo was leaked from the Supreme court that signaled the probable overturn of Roe versus Wade. And if you want to take a listen to that, I suggest you do it. But to give a quick take on the EPA ruling, I have with me Matthew Lee, who covers the utility sector for us. And so Matthew, tell me what this ruling from the Supreme Court means in practice. 
Yeah, Mike. So in plain speak, this method uh, that was proposed under the Obama administration, under the clean power plan of setting emission standards for power stations has been ruled by the court to not be legal. So that means looking ahead, we'll have to consider what are the other regulatory options that still are available and feasible, as well as where the market is already moving, maybe perhaps ahead of the pace of current legislation. But yeah, the ruling today just says that what was proposed in the Clean Power Plan, which, by the way, is no longer in force, has been struck down, uh, was not legal. So, in fact, you know, tomorrow nothing changes on the books because there is no Clean Power Plan that's in force anyways right now. Right. What this does do is it removes the Biden administration's ability to bring back the Clean Power Plan that said by 2025 or by 2029, Power plants have to already be decreasing their emissions by a certain pace. So that tool is no longer available. And, and this has been such a big deal in the U.S. because that tool is seen as a major one that could move the power sector in the U.S. quickly and kind of uniformly. Uh, so what do you think is next for the energy sector in the U.S. after this ruling? Yeah, so I think let's let's take a step back and say what are the regulatory implications for the energy sector, right? And so... Uh, there are other options that can still pop up. So obviously, Congress can always pass new legislation um, and or the EPA can rely on some current air pollution, uh, air pollution provisions, which actually in March, the EPA administrator had already said that he is aware uh, that this ruling may come down against the EPA and plans to pursue um, other types of rules specific to coal plants, such as smog. Uh, other air pollutants, mercury, uh, leachate of uh, waste into water systems, these other types of regulations that exist at specific to power plants that can raise the cost of operation and compliance uh, for coal power, coal-fired power plants and still speed up ex- essentially their closure. Um, and even without these new rules in place, we're already seeing these types of rules uh, giving companies a hard decision in terms of whether or not to keep operating their coal-fired power plants. So Ameren uh, Utility decided um, earlier last year to move towards phasing out its Rush Island power plant, one of its major coal plants, due to the EPA slapping a large uh, uh, the, sorry, the EPA ruling that they would have to ins- install more uh, smog scrubbing technology for it to continue operating. Due to Russia Ukraine, they've decided to continue operating the plant for now, but uh, it has bumped up the timeline of phasing out that plant specifically. So this EPA ruling is similar to Roe versus Wade in that it effectively puts the decision to lower emissions in the hands of the state. So states still have their emission reduction plans in place, right? Yeah, definitely. So don't forget that state level policies like renewable portfolio standards um, are still going to be in place, right? Whatever is not, uh, I think, states' rights, that uh, term we, we hear getting thrown around a lot, really uh, is going to drive uh, quite a lot of uh, action and continued commitment towards the renewable energy transition. But don't forget market forces too, right? The top states in terms of installed capacity percentage uh, for renewables are actually Iowa, South Dakota, New Mexico, Kansas, and in the top 10 also states like Texas, right? So the market is already moving a lot of states towards adopting renewables, uh, whether or not state level policies are demanding. Okay, last but not least, how are investors impacted by this ruling? Does it change perceptions? Uh, what's going on there? Yeah, I think this doesn't 
affect the momentum from the investors for demanding more energy transition related planning and disclosures for energy companies. Why? Because we have to remember two sides of the coin, right? Even if carbon emissions uh, related regulatory risks seem to be slightly lower as a result of this ruling, as we've discussed just now, the state level, uh, other new legislation or subsidies or uh, EPA's other rules could still come into play. But the flip side is opportunities in renewable energy, right, which a lot of investors are really excited about and see this as an important growth prospect for energy companies to diversify their generation fleet. And, and so falling behind there can still be a factor for investors to shift their valuation of a company. I think what's going to become key now is that uh, there's going to be this zone of uncertainty between a company saying I want to be net zero by 2050 and having a real push to make interim progress as a result of no immediate legislation pushing them. So investors may want to uh, demand more scrutiny in terms of reviewing uh, companies' interim net zero plans, as well as taking a look at their capital expenditures and generation planning to see you know, how they're shifting in the five-year uh, in a five-year span, in the next five years, next couple of years, versus just a 2050 to evaluate progress. I think from a broader net zero alignment perspective, the slowdown is quite concerning for the world. The U.S. power sector alone, which is 25% of the U.S.'s emissions, if you quantify that, would be the fifth largest emitting country in the world, right? It's still ahead of Japan, Germany, South Korea, Indonesia, Canada. So it is contributing a lot to the warming potential of the world. And so if this ruling does stall progress towards that, uh, we can be moving towards uh, what I think the industry is now like to call a disorderly transition, right? So rather than the gradual shift to renewables, which has the least volatility and disruption to our economy, if we do make a net zero line transition, it could be more disorderly if this pushes back the timeline of us moving towards renewables. On the other hand, the physical risk side of climate change, right? The more certain that we are on a path towards exceeding that 1.5 C, more towards that two degrees Celsius threshold, the more likely those effects are exacerbated and affect all companies and investors. Yep, we are all tied in with the dismal tide that this might bring. And that's it for the week. I want to thank Miranda and Liz and Matthew for discussing the news with an ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. That helps us a lot, and I really appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe so you can hear me every week. Uh, speaking of every week, we are going to be off next week for a little summer vacation, and we will talk to you again after that. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor, and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to, nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is 
and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.